Church family, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26 specifically. Uh, For those of you that are new to Dawson, we are journeying through the book of Philippians together as a church through this fall uh, season, and we come now to Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. There are in every one of us certain indelibly imprinted memories that shape us. They're etched in a, in a very deep place of who we are, and they form us, they continue to teach us, and they shape us. Uh, th- those memories come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. For some of you, it's sweet memories of those early Christmases that you enjoyed with your family, the anticipation of opening uh, the presence under the tree there. For others, it's those uh, memories of maybe being uh, elementary school age and you're in an elementary school play and you've got a small speaking part and you remember the f- butterflies in your stomach, the anxiety that you felt. For others, it's on the baseball field. Last inning, two outs, you're up to plate, you hit a little dinker right over the second baseman, the guy on third scores, and you're the champion. For me, it was two outs, struck out. (laughs) Not quite the same memory. We could share those kinds of memories. Some of the memories are uh, you uh, take your mom's or your dad's vehicle, first time you're on the road and you're driving. You remember what it felt like to drive the vehicle for the first time. Others, you remember what it's like to take that same vehicle and back it into your neighbor's mailbox for the first time. (laughs) Uh, We all have these kinds of memories, and they shape us, and they mold us. They are the types of stories we tell when we gather together with family, when we gather together with friends, because they're they're these types of memories that that we are, that we share. Some of those memories are are memories that introduce us to uh, new seasons, new horizons, new uh, joys and new difficulties. I remember vividly, I was six years old. My mother walked into the living room where I was. She asked, where's your brother Michael? He was four. She called us together, set us down on the couch. There were tears streaming down her face and she informed us. I don't remember her exact words, but the impression I received was your grandpa was in an accident and he didn't survive. I don't remember everything she said, but I remember her telling us one day we will see him again in heaven. If you're familiar with the Narnia series, it was as if I had walked through Lewis's wardrobe and had walked into a place called Narnia, called heaven. And everything was new to me. I am sure I'd heard of heaven before, but that was the first time where, where heaven intersected with people that I love and the prospect of being there and seeing someone again. All of us have these memories where, where we become uh, informed of mortality. We become f- informed of this reality that, that unless Christ comes back in his second coming, all of us, all of us will face the inevitable of death. The death is the great equalizer. It, it has no sense of ageism or no sense of discrimination, regardless of socioeconomic class. It comes for one, it comes for all. Uh, since Ponce de Leon's 
sell, looking for the, sort of this fable fountain of youth. People have, have tried to push it away. People have tried to avoid it. People have tried to prolong life. Just two years ago, Google instituted this $1.5 billion institute to study the effects of nanotechnology to be able to live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But, but I wonder if the question needs to be asked, do we need in these bodies on this earth as it is with this mind, do we need to live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds? It's immortality on this earth as it is and our body as it is. Is that a good thing? The Apostle Paul is squarely facing the prospects of his own mortality. He is in house arrest, most likely in Rome, He is pondering his fate, whether he would get out of this prison, whether he'd be executed in this prison, what would occur. And we notice how how Paul faces all of these question marks with this sense of of gusto and certainty. And I think as we overhear Paul talking to the church at Philippi here, it gives us hope. It gives us certainty. Notice what Paul says in verse 19, yes, and I will rejoice For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking in verse 7 and verse 14 of his imprisonment here. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 21. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again." Really, when you boil down what Paul is pondering here, there's this inner monologue that he is having with himself. He, he wants to depart and be with Christ, but he's writing to a church that he, he longs to see again, and he has this holy hunch that he's going to see them again. He says, thank you for your prayers, verse 19, because your prayers are going to lead to my deliverance through the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Now, what type of deliverance he is talking about, that's difficult for us to pinpoint, There's some biblical commentators that look at this passage and and feel that he's talking about a a deliverance uh, from from the hands of the executor, from the hands of of Caesar himself. Others say maybe the deliverance that he's going to receive is to get out of prison. There's going to be this holy jailbreak and Paul is going to be able to live in freedom again. There are others that say that Paul is talking about ultimate salvation. It very well may be that all three are in Paul's mind because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what the future holds before him. So whether it is the executioner, whether it is remaining imprisoned, he knows that ultimate salvation is coming because he is sure of this foundation and his deliverer, Jesus Christ. And that gives him, that assurance gives him the ability to say these astounding words in verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What Paul is saying here is, is, is hope filled for all of us that come after him. Paul is saying death is gain when to live is Christ. Verse 21 is one of the 
more powerful and poignant passages in all of Paul's epistles. It very well may be one of the more famous passages in all the New Testament. It sort of rings with gusto, doesn't it? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the original language of the New Testament, you pick up on the rhythm and the rhyme of the passage, to zen Christos, to apothen kurdos. I mean, there is this sense of where there's a balance and a, 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 a harmony that Paul has really just in the, in the words that we have in verse 21. But there's much more to that than just the rhythm and the rhetoric of verse 21. Paul, Paul is stating something that gives us tremendous hope in the face of the uncertainty that is before all of us. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now it's easy for us to get to the die is gain part. And that really is what Paul is talking about here. But he's only able to say to die is gain because he says first and foremost to live is Christ. Karl Barth, who is a 20th century theologian, he has a commentary on the book of Philippians. He says that the best commentary on verse 21 is Paul's own words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It, it is almost Paul explaining what he means in Philippians 1.21 to live as Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified, Galatians 2.20, with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying not that he is a martyr. He is still among us. He's writing these words, but he is saying, I, while I live, have been crucified with Christ. So what Christ has experienced, because I am in him and he is in me, I have experienced. So while Christ has given victory ultimately over sin, so I've received victory ultimately over sin because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. As, as Christ lives through his resurrection and has defeated death and has defeated the grave, so I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. So I too, through him, have a hope in the face of whether I die, whether I stay in prison, whatever it is, because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you sit down, Paul, Paul is just narrow-minded. I mean, if you just sit him down and say, Paul, what's the central thesis of your life for me to live as Christ? Paul, what, what is the, the leading character of your story of your life for me to live as Christ? I mean, he is, he is so narrowly focused in the best of ways that everything that comes to him is seen through the lens of his identity in Christ. And this changes everything of how he experiences the uncertainty of whatever tomorrow would hold before him. There's an archaeological dig that occurred a few decades ago that found this Roman inscription. They found it in Carthage, but it, it, it says to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game. That is life. To laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game. That is life. You see, there, there always have been false and, and competing narratives to what Paul is saying, to live is Christ. And, and these Roman soldiers said, no, 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 no. To live is to bathe, to live is to hunt, to live is to, and we can fill in the, the blanks 2,000 years later because they're false narratives, they're competing stories to what Paul is saying to live is Christ. There, there are other alternatives and idols that you can place your faith in. There are people that will say today, you know, to live is to fulfill your everlasting pleasure, your everlasting aspiration. That's truly life. So, so to truly be alive, you, you go on the next vacation, the next trip, and then, and then only will you truly have experienced life. Or, or uh, to 
truly experienced life, you, you fulfilled every sensual pleasure that, that comes your way, then you will truly experience life. Or people will say, hey, to truly experience life, you must accumulate. So if you have enough, fill in the blank, you have enough money, you have enough prestige, you have enough position, then you'll truly be alive. You can live in the, the, the best house, then you would truly be alive. You can have the security, then you will truly be alive. Or to truly live is to succeed. So you go to the right school and you get the right degree to get the right job and you get the right job to live in the right community and to get the right job and to get the right Finally, somewhere you will say, I'm alive. I have it all. Now, there's nothing wrong intrinsically with any of those things, but they're not sturdy enough to put the full weight of your identity in. Nothing's wrong with accumulation. These are good things, and they're God's good gifts that he gives to us. There's nothing wrong with taking steps forward. There's nothing wrong with these things that we accumulate. There's nothing wrong with the pleasure at times that God gives us to seek, but what occurs is that we seek those in all the wrong places. What we figure out somewhere in life is, it's just not enough. And what Paul says is, is that, that you can have it all and be spiritually poor if you do not have Christ. And if your identity is not fully rooted in him, Paul says to live is Christ. That, that my whole identity is rooted in what he has done for me and him being in me right now. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of football season at the Eldridge household. We have two of our oldest sons that are playing, one on uh, Thursday nights with the middle school team, another on Friday nights with the high school team. Our youngest is starting flag football real soon. And so every Thursday, every Friday, you'll find us there in the stands and we're watching. And oftentimes our fourth grader is with a bunch of his friends and he comes up to us, just sort of a, a, a routine to it. He says, dad, I'm hungry. Dad, I'm thirsty. Or I say, hey son, will you go to the concession stand? Well, what I say to my nine-year-old isn't, hey son, will you take all of your wealth and go down there to the concession stand and buy us something. He, he doesn't. Even what he has through his chores, his, his mom and I give him. Uh, even his resources that he has are our resources. But he comes to us and if I say, hey, take your money and go buy something for us, he looks at us with this quizzical look and says, I don't have any money. So the routine that we have is we give him the debit card out of my wallet and I say, go there. And, and he walks to the concession stand and whether it's Skittles or whether it's uh, bottled waters or whether it's Sprites or whatever. And it's usually another thing or two that gets added to the list right there. But he comes back. Now, why he is able to do that is because what is mine for that moment and that purpose, I entrust to him. So the resources that his mom and I have collectively as a couple are, are, are given to him for that moment and that purpose to go. And so he is able to purchase something, not because he is financially sound as a nine-year-old or because he has this great wealth that he is able to draw upon. The answer is no, he has what is ours that we have given to him for that moment, for that purpose. And he is able to purchase and he is able to come back with something, not because of his intrinsic worth, but because of the worth that is entrusted to him. And for every one of us that are here, what is our father's becomes ours through his son. And so when we live in Christ, 
His identity becomes what fills us and what secures us and what gives us a hope. So Paul is able to say, to live is Christ. And because of the assurance of his identity in Christ and what is Christ is his, then he's able to say, to die is gain. Well, Paul, why are you saying to die is gain? Because he is sure of his destination. Notice this in verse 23, that death is gain, not only when you say to live is Christ, but death is gain when you're sure of your destination. Verse 23 is this powerful passage where he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. We have through the remainder of this section of Scripture, Paul's internal monologue that he's going back and forth. He is, he is saying, and we're able to overhear him going back and forth. He says, I want to depart and be with Christ because that's far better. But he has this holy hunch that that's not God's will. He has this holy hunch that he needs to be there and he needs to minister among the Philippian believers here. And he longs to be with them again and he looks forward to being with them again. And Paul holds these balances, I think, in, in, in good tension here. He knows to departs to be with Christ. That's the best. But him being here and the ministry that he has, the friendship that he has, the calling that God has upon his life is, is such that God has that for a purpose and a time in his life. But the uncertainty of when he's going to depart, he doesn't fear that. He's not paralyzed by that. He knows that God has a purpose for him. He knows he's sure of his destination. And for us as Christians here on earth, we're not fatalistic in the face of death. We, we don't say things like, oh, death, no big deal. Death is an enemy. It's a conquered enemy. But Genesis 1, Genesis 2, death, death is not in the Garden of Eden. We have access to the tree of life. Death comes in as an, as an invader. We grieve over death. Jesus himself weeps in the face of, of Lazarus there, where Mary and Martha are weeping and saying, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not be, uh, would be dead now. He would not be dead. And so we as Christians, we, we can say that every day that we have on, here on earth is a gift. And, and we can cherish and, and feel the, the preciousness of life and the gift of family and the gift of work and the gift of what he's entrusted to us to do, to be faithful about the Lord's business. This is what God has given us. But Paul says, hey, when my time here on earth is up, I'm going to depart and I'm going to be where? With Christ. There's a teaching that has floated around the, the, really the, the skirts of the Christian church for years and years, and, and it continues to rear its head. And I, I hear people ask me about it. It's this concept of soul sleep. There, there's some that believe that when a Christian dies that there's this intermediary time between the second coming of Christ and, and when we would consciously be in his presence. And so there's some that teach that, that we would die and then we go into this in-between. And then eventually we'll consciously be with the Lord in the second coming. But until then, it's just this holy in-between where we're safe, but, but we're not conscious. And, and that's not what Paul says here. And I think there are other passages that help us with this. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Think about Jesus talking to the thief on the cross. He says to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. 
So Paul gives us an assurance of the destination that is before us when we depart from this earthly home that he has for us. Alice in Wonderland has this little scene where Alice comes to a fork in the road and she's talking to the Cheshire cat right there and she says, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the cat responds, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And Alice's response to that is, I don't much care where. And then the cat responds, then it doesn't matter which way you go. And I tell you that because I think it's indicative of of the sentiment of millions, maybe even billions of people that aren't necessarily sure where they are. They're not really sure of where to head and not sure of the destination that is before them. But it does not have to be that way for you and for me in Jesus Christ. That for every person that has trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you can be sure of where you are and you can be sure of your eternal destination. Paul uses that word in verse 23, depart. It is a nautical word. All of the the people that would have heard that in Paul's day would would have heard the imagery of Paul boarding a ship. A ship that he's not the captain of a ship that he has not created. This is not Paul on a rowboat of his own making trying to, to, trying to navigate the, the, the waters to an eternal home on the other side of the shore. That's not what Paul's getting on here. It is a sturdy vessel that is captained not by Paul, but by Jesus himself. You, you think about many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy. When he comes to the very end, you have you have Gandalf and you have Bilbo and Frodo. You have some of the elves that are they're boarding the ship. They're headed into a place of of restoration. They're headed into a place of recovery here. And that's Tolkien. What is he doing? He's channeling the very words of the Apostle Paul here as he departs. And and he heads to a destination that is sure because it is an assurance that is given to us by the very one who captains the vessel, Jesus himself. Brittany has already read to us a a beautiful passage earlier in our worship service that that speaks of the very comfort that every follower of Jesus can have. When Jesus is talking to the disciples in John chapter 14, it's as if the disciples have figured out, you know something, Jesus, you've been talking about going to the cross. You've been talking about your death. And it dawns upon them what Jesus is very likely going to experience is going to be something that they most likely will experience. And so they're filled with fear. And Jesus looks at them and he gives them some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture. And they're words that speak to you and they're words that speak to me. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, John 14. Believe in God, believe also in, my, in me and in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. In verse 5, Thomas says, hold on here. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then John 14, verse 6, this famous passage, I am the way, Jesus says. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is reassuring the disciples in the uncertainty of their future as their followers of him that I have a certain home prepared for each and every one of you. And just as I have prepared that home, so I will ensure your safe arrival at that home. There, there is so much in life that we have question marks to. 
And I think it's realistic for us to say, as Christians, Jesus has not given us an assurance of exactly how uh, we are going to experience the boarding of that ship to our eternal home. He, he doesn't tell us how that's going to be. And it's rightful, I think, for us to experience unease about that. But we don't have to be paralyzed with fear. Because while we might not know uh, with, with 100% certainty how we're going to experience the, the what of those final days and those final moments, we don't know that, but this we're sure of. When we aren't sure of the how, we're sure of the where. The where is certain for a follower of Jesus. This isn't a question mark. This isn't uncertain. This is sure. It's sure as I stand before you because it is not based upon my words. It is based upon the very word of God and the word, Jesus Christ, who ensures our arrival. I began this sermon with these sort of young, indelibly etched memories that all of us have. Another one for me was about five years old. We were living in this two-story duplex as we had moved to uh, the town that I would grow up in. My mom and dad would oftentimes, it would be school night, they would say, son, you need to go to bed. I would go up to my room that was right outside of, of where the living room, this open space, and the sound from the living room would come up to my room. You remember when you're five years old and six years old, it, it just seems as if you just cannot go to sleep. And I would, I would overhear what my mom and dad would experience in the living room below. And oftentimes it was this, this rhythm and pattern of, of them laughing at the television and, and me hearing this music coming upstairs to my room. And, and some announcer would come on and say, and here's Johnny. And I thought to myself, this sounds fun. I've got to experience this. What is, who is this? What are they talking about here? So I inquisitively would scream out, what are you watching? And they would say, go to bed. I would say, can I watch that? And they would say, go to bed. But they would relent not on Thursdays, not on Wednesdays, but I could convince them on Friday Saturday is coming. I can stay up and I can watch this. It's got to be amazing. I mean, this has got to be the most amazing thing that a five-year-old could watch is this, uh, this, this mystery of Johnny Carson. And so I remember my parents letting me do this. They set up a pallet for me on the living room floor. And I did not know as a five-year-old to get to the 1030 showing of Johnny Carson. You had to go through the 10 o'clock news. And that was an obstacle for me. Um, the, the, the seven day forecast was not quite as engaging as I thought it was going to be. And so most often when I would have these Friday evenings staying up, watching what my parents were watching, I didn't make it and I would fall asleep on that hard living room floor. But never once did I wake up the next morning there. Never once did I wake up the next morning on that living room floor. You see, something happened that I didn't have anything to do with. Something happened that I didn't really even participate with. While I was asleep, my father would come down and he would lean over and scoop me up in his arms and he would carry me up those steps and he would put me in a bed in a room that was prepared for me by him and my mom.
One of the greatest joys as a dad, I think, is that Danielle and I have three boys and we've repeated that pattern as any parent would, what feels to be like hundreds of times. Our kids would go to sleep on the couch, our kids would go to sleep on the bed or on, on the floor, and we would we'll we'll scoop them up. And I can just think back over 15 years of, of parenting, uh, looking at my children, my, my sons in that moment. It just seems as if everything is so vulnerable in that moment. There's just such an intimacy in that moment and, and carrying them. Now now they're 15 and the other one's the eighth grade. I might mean, have to get a couple of Sanford football players to help me do that now. But but you get the point. You've been there, you've done that, and you look into this intimacy. Of a, of a parent looking at their child and carrying them into a room and tucking them in as they're sound asleep and you feel in that moment everything is right. One day, for each and every one of us who are in Christ, we, we will fall asleep on, on the living room floor that is uncomfortable at times and, and is hard at times and we call that this earth. For each and every one of us who are in Christ, our Heavenly Father will carry us home. And we will close our eyes to this earth and we will open our eyes to an eternal home that He has prepared for us. I do not know what that is going to be like, but, but I have a hunch that when we wake up, we'll look around at the joys of the place that He has prepared for us. And in that moment, the, the heart cry that we will experience then and for an eternity more is to say, finally, I'm home sweet home. Let us pray.